nominate him to be the king of the world. But Matthew's version is a little different, and if you look at the context, and uh, we're going to cover verses 13 through 21, and we'll be able to get through this fairly quickly. Matthew puts the context within the beheading of John the Baptist. The beginning of that chapter tells us that Herod Antipas executes John the Baptist uh, on the whim, on a whim and a challenge by his wife, and delivers the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So it's a very gruesome scene. And the word reaches Jesus. And so we pick up at verse 13. This would be Matthew 14 and verse 13. And when Jesus heard it, heard about John's execution, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. And Jesus gets in the boat and he crosses to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, he does this for two reasons. First of all, it assures him that he will have protection from Herod because he's no longer in Herod's jurisdiction. Herod operated on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus now will not be arrested by Herod, uh, at least in any time in the near future. And second of all, it will afford him an opportunity to, to just get off by himself and think through the events that have just taken place, and to grieve a little bit. And, uh, you know, you wonder what, uh, what he thinks about, or what he intends to think about when he gets to the other side, because John the Baptist is his cousin, number one. John the Baptist is the one that pointed to Jesus to be the Messiah. And Jesus may be thinking, hey, is this my fate? Is this what's going to happen to me? So he gets in this boat and heads for the other side. But, look what it says in the middle of verse 13. Here's a but. The but is, he wants to get off by himself. But here's the, if he wants to get off by himself, here's the but. But when the multitude heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. In other words, the crowd finds out that he's getting in this boat. He's going straight across to the other side. And they follow on the shoreline by foot. They go halfway around the circumference of the Sea of Galilee, watching the boat out there, saying, where is he going? And they're sort of following along on foot. Now this is going to be about, the boat ride is probably going to take two hours. So this is at least a two-hour journey. And they're watching the boat. So then we see in verse 14, it says, And when Jesus went out, meaning he went out of the boat, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion on them. When he gets out of the boat, there are these thousands of people. And uh, it breaks his heart. Now remember, what he wants to do is he wants to be off by himself. But he is moved, it says. He's motivated by this broken-hearted mercy upon the people. Because here he sees these people are tormented, many of them are sick. They're hunting for a miracle. That's why they're following him. They're hunting him. They're hunting for a miracle. They have a need. And he's just moved with that. And then it goes on to say, at the end of verse 14, and he healed their sick. So we don't know how he did this, through laying on of hands, through a word, through exorcism. But we're dealing with a prolonged period of time when you have thousands of people and let's say hundreds are sick. If you laid hands on a hundred people at a time and you did this, you do two hours in the boat ride, you know, maybe another few hours ministering to these people. Uh, 
They have to be exhausted. He has to be exhausted. He's dealing with grief. And then the sun starts to go down and the disciples realize that they have a problem. Look in verse 15. When it was evening, his disciples came to him and they said, Look, Jesus, we have, we have a problem here. This is a deserted place. Same word used up in verse 13. We're sort of in the wilderness experience. There's no 7-Elevens, no gas stations, you know, nothing like that. No ATM machines. And the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. So, the uh, apostles realize that these people are getting hungry and they're exhausted. We know on this side of the lake, spread out over the miles, there are 200 different towns. Uh, some of them uh, with populations exceeding 15,000. So there will be places that they can go and find food. But guess what? How long has this meeting been going on? How long did they walk around the lake to get to Jesus? These people are exhausted, and Jesus realizes it. It's not like he's going to heal them and say, Okay, now, goodbye, see you later. See? So Jesus, they, so the, the disciples come up with a suggestion, and their suggestion is, send them away, let them go get something to eat. And uh, that's the man-made solution. That's the human solution. Jesus gives the divine solution. He gives the supernatural solution. So here we're going to see two solutions. The natural solution offered by the apostles, and then the divine solution, the supernatural solution offered by Jesus. Look at verse 16. But, there's that contrast again. But Jesus, we could put it this way, but Jesus contradicted them. That's what the word but means. It's a contract. But Jesus said unto them, they do not need to go away. And there's a real strong emphasis here in the Greek. You give them something to eat. The you, the pronoun you, is emphasized in the Greek text. You give them something to eat. Now, this crowd has thousands of people. I'm sure that the apostles were shocked at this point when Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Now, just to put yourself in the scene, thousands of people, they're hungry. You say, hey, we need to get them out into those villages so they can get something to eat. And you're there. You're the one who made the suggestion. And you have thousands of people, and Jesus said, well, you give them something to eat. How would you think, what would you think about that? How would you feel? Would you feel like, me? I don't have any food. I'm talking about me. Could you see, sort of feel bewildered or angry or whatever? And I think they are a little angry. Because this next verse, what we see is a mild rebuke. <clears throat> Look in verse 17. They said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. I'm going to feed people with five loaves and two fish. That's what we would have said had we been there. That's what I would have said had I been there. We talk about me feeding them. Man, amongst all the people, all we got is five loaves and two fish. Now, one loaf of bread in those days would feed three people. So they had five loaves. So how many people can they feed? Fifteen. And a couple of fish. 
If that's going to feed Jesus and his apostles, there's nothing left over. I'm going to feed them. We can hardly feed ourselves. But very interestingly, in the book of Psalms, God says this. He says, I will abundantly bless his provisions. I will abundantly bless his provisions. I will satisfy the poor with food. That's Psalm 135. I will abundantly satisfy bless his provisions. I will provide the poor with bread or with food. Now, the Jews believe, based on that kind of passage and the Isaiah 35 passage and Isaiah 25 passage, they believe that when the Messiah came to set up the kingdom of God on earth, he was going to feed the masses. That was just the expectation. Everything would, re- would change. The poor would now have plenty to eat and the Messiah would provide the bread. In fact, if Moses, if God through Moses could provide bread for the people in the wilderness, a deserted place, how much more would God provide bread through the Messiah when he came to set up the kingdom of God? That's their logic. And remember when Jesus gave the disciples the kingdom prayer? He says, now when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will and thy Give us this day, what? Our daily bread. So this is what he told them to pray. And guess what? He tells them when they said these guys are hungry, he says, you feed them. So how are we going to feed them? What did he just say? Chapters earlier. Give us this day our daily bread. They ask, why don't you just ask God for it? Uh, but they don't do that. What they want to do is turn the people away. So, Jesus answers. <clears throat> and look what he says when they say the five loaves and two fish. Verse 18. He says, bring them to me. Bring what to me? Not the people. Come Bring the five loaves and two fishes to me. Bring me the resources that you have. Can't bring him what you don't have. Bring him the resources that you have. Use the little bit that you have. Don't say we can't help. Use the little bit that you have. So when you look back again at Moses, here's Moses facing an insurmountable obstacle. He's got a multitude of people with him. The Pharisees are chasing them. I mean, the Pharaoh's armies are chasing them, and they come up against the Red Sea. And that's it. They're going to just die. They're going to be massacred right there on the shoreline. It takes place on the shoreline. And so God says, Moses, do you have a rod? A rod? Yeah. Give me, lift up your rod. Go like this. Just take what you have and lift it up. And when he does, what happens? See, See, God takes what we have and he uses it to do the miraculous. Little is much when God is in it. So he says, bring it to me. Bring me those five loaves of bread and two little fish. Now look at verse 19. And he commanded the multitudes to sit on the grass. Tells us it's the springtime. Very interesting. In John's Gospel, it happens during the Passover season, which is the springtime. 
he commanded the multitudes to sit on the grass. Now these are the people who are going to be fed. Notice they have to be obedient. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave it to the multitude. So what we see here is that Jesus holds this bread in his hands and it says he blessed it. There was a typical Jewish blessing that rabbis prayed over meals and over bread and it went like this. Blessed art thou, O God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread for the earth. That's called the Jewish Benedictus. Blessed art thou, O God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread for the earth. I'm convinced that that's the prayer that Jesus, that was a common prayer. It's like the one where we said, uh, when we pray, is Baptists pray. You know what they do? What, what do you, what's the, how does it usually end? Something about what is it? You know what it is. You say it every time you pray out in public. What is it? Not amen. No, not that. <laughs> I never prayed the prayer. I don't even know it. But I know it goes like this. Something like us for your service. What is that? Not Jesus' name. What is it for us for your service? What's that phrase? Joe prays it. Whatever, forget it. <laughs> Scratch this point off my lesson. <laughs> I believe that was the, uh, the prayer, and it's a kingdom prayer. And then it says what he does is he breaks the bread. Now think about this. There are five loaves of bread, and he breaks them in half. Now how many pieces of bread are there? Ten, and how many fish? Two. That's twelve pieces. And he gives one to each of the apostles. And as they begin to distribute it, it multiplies. And a miracle happens right in front of their eyes. Right in their own hands. Just like Moses holds that rod up and it's happening right in their own hands. So it just multiplies right in front of them. And so look at verse 20. We have the results of all this. It says, and so they all, that's the whole crowd, ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. So after they all ate, the waitress came up and said, you want a doggy bag for that? <laughs> we have leftovers here. You don't only have leftovers. You have 12 baskets full. You have more leftovers than the food that you started with. Now that's abundance. <laughs> and it's reminiscent of an Old Testament passage. And I want to show this to you. Look over at 2 Kings. <clears throat> 2 Kings. And there are several of these kinds of stories in the Old Testament, and it's important because if these kinds of things happen in the Old Testament, why shouldn't you expect them to happen in the New Testament? So 2 Kings in chapter 4.
And when you get to 2 Kings chapter 4, look down at verse 42. And here's what it says. Then a man came from Baal Shalisa. This is 2 Kings 4.42. And brought the man of God bread of the first fruits. Twenty loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people. Look what the look what the what the prophet said, what Elisha said. Give it to the people that they might eat. Now how many breads does he have? He has twenty breads and some grain in his knapsack. The guy does. He gives it to the prophet. And the prophet says, Give it to the people that they may eat. But the servant said, What? Shall I set this before a hundred men? Not enough for a hundred people, it's enough for you. And he said again, Give it to the people that they may eat. And here's the reason. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some what? Left over. <laughs> so he set it before them, and they ate, and they had some left over according to the word of God. That's the same exact result that you have in Matthew's Gospel and the feeding of the 5,000. So go back there. That is Elijah. Elijah had also uh, uh, miracles like that where flour never ran out and the grain never ran out. And so when you look at chapter 14 of Matthew in verse 21, it says, Now those who had eaten, this is how it all ends, those who were eaten, who had eaten, were about 5,000 men besides the women. Their wives are with them. That would make 10,000. And the children. And if there are two kids to a family, that would be 20,000. Some of those families were very large. So we have multiples of 5,000 here. You know, we may have 20,000 people. So when you think about this incident, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, it's multiplied, and everyone is satisfied and even more than satisfied. There's an abundance, and there's beyond abundance. Abundance means more than enough. This is a banquet compared to what these people eat. So when you have more left over than you started with, this is a real miracle. And uh, how much left over? What did they have left over in verse 20? Twelve baskets full. Think twelve means anything? Think Matthew just sort of throws twelve around in his book all for, for no reason. Twelve represents, you know, Israel. Twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve apostles. It'll be through the apostles that God, this remnant of believers, that God is going to reinstitute Israel. He's going to establish a new covenant with Israel. It's going to be through the twelve apostles who are believing Israel. And uh, this miracle foreshadows what God's going to do for Israel. When the kingdom arrives, He's going to uh, provide them with a messianic feast that not only meets their needs, but goes beyond their needs. This, in a sense, becomes one of those enacted prophecies. Yes, the 5,000 people were fed, but guess what? There's a meaning beyond the text. There's a meaning beyond the printed word. And what you're supposed to see is this. Jesus is the king, the one who's setting up the kingdom. 
And when he does, and those who follow him, those who become the Israel of God are going to be cared for. Uh, so that's a picture of this messianic banquet to come where God feeds everyone in their full. We see the same thing in the Last Supper. Exactly the same thing in the Last Supper where Jesus provides a meal for the apostles. And uh, he says, I will not eat this meal with you again until what? Anybody know? Until the kingdom comes. This is a foreshadowing of the kingdom meal of the messianic Supper. And guess what? Every time we eat the Lord's Supper, it's the same thing. We eat the Lord's Supper, which I believe in Bible times was a full meal. Not a little thimble full of grape juice and a little smidgen of bread. It was a full meal. And that's what that one book is about. It's about the meals in the early church. And they ate that meal with believers and joy and were satisfied. And even the poor amongst the church members in the first century who never got a decent meal ate a meal and were satisfied. And the Lord's Supper is a foreshadowing of the kingdom to come. In fact, we actually get a foretaste of the kingdom to come when we have a Lord's Supper in that fashion. Now, what does that say? That's the story. There's the story right there. It's right on your page in front of But what does the story mean for Matthew's audience living 50 years after the events took place? They weren't there. The readers weren't there when these events took place. Why does Matthew choose to tell this story? To his church members 50 years later. And what does this story mean for us living 2,000 years later? See, you're always having to look at things in layers. The events that took place in 30 A.D., what did it mean for the audience in 70 A.D.? What does it mean for the audience in whatever year we're in, 2,000 years later? So, first of all, when I look at this, if I'm reading this, I would say, well, I'm learning some lessons here. Number one, Jesus is not intimidated by the magnitude of our problems. No matter what problem you have not intimidated by that problem, no matter I mean, feeding 20,000 people, <coughs> filling up the convention center. How many people go to the basketball game at the convention center? How many seats is it? 20,000? Now you have uh, five loaves, two fish, and I said, now uh, the crowd's here for the basketball game, we're not going to sell hot dogs tonight distribute cups. What we're going to do is we're going to feed them. And you're in charge with feed them, feeding the whole crowd. Here's five loaves and two fishes. You say, I can't do that. Hey, Jesus isn't intimidated by the size of our problems. It doesn't matter whether you have a financial problem. It doesn't matter whether you lost thousands of dollars on the stock market. It doesn't matter whether you're unemployed. It doesn't matter whether your kids are going wrong or your grandkids are going wrong. It doesn't matter whether you're physically ill no problem is too big for Jesus. He's not intimidated by it. He can intervene, and just like that, the whole thing can be changed. So we should see hope in this story for us. And also, another lesson I see is that God is more concerned about your problem than those around you are concerned about your problem. Now, I mean, I do think the apostles were concerned, but I think Jesus is more concerned. 
They came up with the natural solution. He came up with the supernatural solution. He's the one that gave them the solution. So he's more concerned about your needs than maybe even you are. And another thing that we see is that God uses what we have to solve the problem. We have to be willing to relinquish it. So well, if I do this, I won't be, we won't even be able to eat Jesus. Well, if I give you the five loaves that you're going to break in half and the two fish, then we won't even have anything that you have to be willing to relinquish. What you have, because he uses what we have in a miraculous way. And then there's that act of obedience where the apostles have to turn it over and then the people have to sit down. You have to act on these things. You just can't believe that he can do it. You have to act on it. Sit down. Distribute the food. Any sick among you, let them what? Call upon the elders of the church. Let them pray for them. God, but we don't want to do that. Why don't we do it? He says do it. We believe it, but then guess what? We don't do it. <laughs> it takes the obedience in order to see the miracle. We have to act on it. And then, finally, in the context, we see the difference between Herod's banquet and Jesus' banquet. Which banquet would you rather gone to? Herod's banquet, described as full of drunkenness, debauchery, and ends up in death. That's what the world offers you. Hey, let's go out and party. Let's go out and have a good time. Drunkenness, debauchery, and death. But look at Jesus' banquet, by contrast. Everyone is filled. Everyone is satisfied. And it's a great time of joy. All of this points to the future kingdom. And you know something? The greatest thing is, we can get a foretaste of it now. And we can, that's what we do. When people eat together, and people do what they're supposed to do, and they meet needs, and they, they bring in their cans, and give their dollars, and support this ministry, hey, we are actually experiencing the kingdom for ourselves right now. But it's nothing compared to what we will experience in the future. Next week we pick up at verse 22 where Jesus performs two more miracles where he walks on water. If you think the other miracle was great. And heals all the right. Father, we thank you at this Christmas time when there are so many people without anything to eat. There are people on our streets. There are people, believers now, and other nations that are just living day by day, hand to mouth, suffering persecution under dictators and communist governments and <coughs> Muslim governments. And even in our country, Lord, there are people who are hurting in the churches and don't say anything. Help us to be sensitive, Lord, that we may take our resources, give them to you to meet someone's need. Help us to experience the joy of Christmas and the joy of giving this season. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.